Hi, I'm Lori Feathers, a bookstore owner and writer in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Sam Jordison, a publisher from Norwich in the UK. And this is Across the Pond. A podcast for readers of fiction eager to discover the most discussed and anticipated books on both sides of the Atlantic. All right, let's dive in. Hi, Sam. How's it going? Hey, Laurie. I am all right. Thank you. How are things over there? Things are good. We actually had rain in Dallas yesterday. Yeah, I think it's like the first rain we've had like in 70 consecutive days or something. No way. And it dropped the temperature from 100 degrees to about 85. It quickly ratcheted back up after the rain stopped, but it was... It was so pleasant. I almost felt like going outside and doing a rain dance. It was it was wonderful. Oh, wow. Yeah, we desperately need rain over in the UK as well, most of the UK. We've had a drought like we haven't had for 50 years. And rain is forecast in some parts of the country next week. So I'm holding out for that. And I think I okay. will be dancing. I'm desperate <laughs> to see, see some rain. I know. It was a happy thing when we finally got some here yesterday. So... I want to talk with you today, Sam, about uh, an article that you actually brought to my attention that was published this week in The Guardian by David Barnett. And the article is entitled Magic Bookmark Revealed as Key to Augmented Reality Books. What's this about? Oh, well, let me try and explain. So augmented reality books now, of course, being called A-books, which uh, even as I say it, that doesn't work, does it? It sounds just too much like ebooks. Anyway, <laughs> the the idea is you have a paper book, an actual paper book, but it has kind of in between the papers an extra an extra layer of they're described as ultra thin solar panels that go between two sheets, two halves of a, a single sheet of paper. Sorry. When you when you run your finger over them, it works like what is called a magic bookmark. So essentially, there will be a word in the text or something in the text that you want to look up, for instance, like the background and the character. You run your finger over the, the character's name and it would pop up in on another device near you, like a smartphone, for instance, and then you'd be able to get all the background of the character in fiction. I really... I'm struggling at this point to, to to see the utility of that. Well, well, hold on. So, so I think that maybe we perhaps aren't the best audience for for what I think some people now might see as a shortfall of the physical book. <laughs> I don't, I don't read eBooks really, Sam. I have read before. I don't know whether you do, but I think that one of the one of the real advantages, as I understand it, of people that that enjoy eBooks, and I'm talking here mainly fiction, is that there are sometimes hyperlinks or other things that you can hit a word within a text and find additional information immediately. Like it might take you to the Wikipedia page when the name of an architect comes up or something like that. So I think that what they're trying to do here is say, listen, we kind of we kind of recognize that we're never going to get everyone onto an ebook. And I'm a great defender of keeping physical books around. So they're trying to kind of, I think, make our experience a little more 
ebookish, maybe? I don't know. What do you think? I think you're doing a great job of defending this utter nonsense. <laughs> Which, Uh-oh. <laughs> no, I mean, you do make valid points, but the, the thing that starts screaming in my head, especially when it comes to fiction, is that the whole idea is you don't want people to leave the text. You want to keep them there. And anything that takes them away is a, a distraction. You know, you can maybe put the book down and look something up in your own time, but the text okay. is kind of a sacred... If you break the bond between the reader and the text in this way, it's damaging to the reading experience, I would think. Uh, what else can I say about this? I mean, well, hold on. I'm going to push back on yes, you. So, yes. an example. As I've stated before on the show, one of my favorite contemporary authors is Ali Smith. Mm-hmm. Ali Smith always sends me to my computer. Right. And I don't feel like when I'm looking up an image of an artwork that she's writing about or an architect or an artist or someone else that she's referencing that I might not have heard of and don't know about their work, I am going to my computer. I don't want to wait until I naturally need to put the book down to go and find out what she's what she's talking about. I'm, I'm immediately curious, particularly when it comes to seeing images of what she's describing. And so perhaps having this kind of ability to do it right there on my couch when I'm l- reading the book rather than jumping up and going to my laptop Maybe maybe that will be more disruptive and I'm going to be keeping with the text more, assuming that your point is valid, that that's an important thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, assuming that my point is valid. And I can see in, <laughs> in nonfiction books it's, it doesn't hold as true. Uh, but, of course, with this technology, all it does is sends the, as far as I understand it, it just sends the information to your laptop or your phone anyway. So nothing's really changed in that regard you just you're just spared the two seconds of typing something into google essentially yes it would appear that that is the case and i I don't have a i don't have a good argument (laughs) except for the fact that perhaps i don't know maybe this technology would would give you an array of really very relevant and very specific information about what I guess would be in essence kind of a a hyperlink um, on the physical page that would take you exactly to what would be most important or interesting to see rather than kind of doing a a Google search. I get your point though, and I, I totally agree with it, that this seems like at least as far as the technology has gone so far, an incredibly clumsy, (laughs) clumsy way. And I don't know. I think that part of the fun of of reading fiction is the discovery process, right? And mm-hmm. and to kind of clumsily search for something that sparked your interest while you were reading, um, maybe is part of the fun. Maybe it is. Maybe. And I, I should, if we had a magic bookmark on this podcast, it would perhaps lead our listeners to an article I wrote about twenty years ago. One of the very first. I wrote for The Guardian and where I started joking about ebook readers and saying, I think I might have been making the same kind of jokes. In fact, Magic Ink, what's this? And uh, whoever is going to want to read a book on an ebook reader? And then, you know, two years later, Kindles came along and proved me horribly wrong. Kind of, except not that many people 
read ebook readers compared to certainly the predictions that were being made when Kindles came out. But anyway, I have a bad track record of being too skeptical on this stuff. And maybe you're right. Maybe you'll be selling them in your shop soon. Well, yeah, this is kind of interesting that nothing is really new, right? Uh, if you've been writing about this for 20 years in terms of the I don't know, the the automation or the augmentation of our, of our reading experience and physical books. But I will say that sometimes there are unintended benefits. So at the bookstore, I know that a lot of people come in and we sell eBooks online. And eBooks are really good for folks that have vision problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Older people, people that, you know, have problems with their eyes, because one of the great things about it, of course, is you can you can just use your fingers on the screen and blow up the text size, you know, really as as big as you need it. I think for for that reason alone, and I'm sure you wouldn't disagree uh, that that technology, I think, is 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 great, although you know, if you, if you do see well enough, I can't see that I'd ever want to go to an ebook over a physical book. Yeah, I think I agree with you on that. Yeah. And in most regards, an ebook is a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. But when it comes, certainly the, the bigger text thing is, I can see that that's tremendously useful and important. Well, I guess we'll see if this a book augmented reality book <laughs> really, really takes off. I was struck in the article, quite a bit of money is being spent to, uh, to study and perfect this technology. The point is made in the article as well that they're seeing the, the broader application of this probably to be nonfiction rather than fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? In a few years, Maybe we should have this conversation again and see where we are. I bet you still will not be any more excited. <laughs> I'm just going to be a terrible, terrible skeptic about the whole thing. <laughs> a, a pure electronic book curmudgeon. That's what you are, Sam. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't want you any other way. It was good talking to you. You too, Laurie. Hello, Across the Pond listeners. Today, we're really pleased to have with us the author, Sonia Overall, whose new novel, Eden, is just published in the UK by Weatherglass Books. Welcome, Sonia. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. I think that we wanted to start out by kind of asking you to tell us a little bit about your novel, what, what it's about, and maybe read a short passage for us. Okay, so Eden is about... Ernest Hemingway failing to write his final novel, The Garden of Eden, which was published posthumously. And it's a book that's fascinated me since I first picked it up in my 20s. I've been thinking about it endlessly since then. And I wanted to write a kind of intertextual response to it. Um, What I've ended up with is a story with three voices. One of them is kind of sitting on Ernest Hemingway's shoulder watching him trying to write the book and failing and doing other things in between. One of them speaks from within the book, and that's his antagonist in the Garden of Eden, Catherine, who's a very strong female character. And the third voice is Penelope, who's a scholar of modernism, and she's reading the book in the present day and tutoring a student on it. And I'm going to read you an extract from Catherine. Catherine, at this point... Um, knows that she is in a novel, but she hasn't quite grasped what it means to be a fictional character. 
So she knows that she's married to David. She knows that Ernest has created her, um, but she's kind of testing the parameters of her own reality. So that's, that's where we're going to start with her. How does it sound in your head? There is the voice telling you how to look, to walk, to sit. You have no choice but to listen. You're made to fit a role. Do not question what he has given you. He, David Ernest, has the talent. You have the money. You accept this as you would accept having red hair instead of blonde or black or brown or eyes of two different colours. What is that called? There is a word for it. He has not given you the word, does not remember it. You have other words, plenty of them. You have a talent for talking, but you do not share his talent for drinking. Sometimes your words become tangled and you cannot comb them out. And so he, David, Ernest, sends you off to bed. You make siesta, and sometimes as you begin to fall into sleep, he is there too, touching you lightly under the sheet, Ernest reaching out through David, reaching out his hand. Or he comes stepping softly, barefoot on the carpet, over to the dresser for a book and leaving you to sleep, falling into that thick greyness as the door clicks behind him. He leaves you, he, David, Ernest, carries on without you, goes downstairs to read, or takes the car into town, or walks to the cafe to study the racing papers. Who knows what he is doing, he, David Ernest, when you are not there. You hover, you float, suspended. Pieces of you are missing, because he does not need you to be whole. Heterochromia, you remember now, he remembers, he gives you that. Your purpose is to serve him, David Ernest, each in his way. There is a pleasurable neatness to this, a symmetrical quality. You are not a muse, do not assume that much. But you make his work possible. You are a bank account and a beautiful face and a source of recreation. Is that enough? Isn't it? It's not. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not enough for Catherine. Um, she does rise up and challenge her parameters. That's a really interesting passage that you just read. And it hits the reader, at least it did for me, and I think probably for most, right off the bat, that you, that Catherine in her own voice isn't always making a distinction between David, her husband in the novel uh, written by Hemingway, The Garden of Eden, and Ernest Hemingway. And so I'm sure that you thought a lot about this and probably did a lot of research about how autobiographical the novel The Garden of Eden is to Hemingway's life. And I must confess that The Garden of Eden is not a novel that I knew that Ernest Hemingway had even written. So do you want to tell us a little bit about the novel and kind of how much it may or may not track Ernest Hemingway's real life? Yeah, so the the Garden of Eden is a kind of idyllic, obviously idyllic version of Hemingway's uh, honeymoon and second marriage. Uh, so he, in the book, he revisits places that he went to with his second wife, and he's David is a kind of recapturing. It's almost like David is, it's like the kind of cleaned up version of what Hemingway wanted to be. He he sort of reinvented himself with the second marriage. He had a what he considered to be a fresh start, um, but all the time, 
And certainly in his later years, he looked back at his first marriage as if that was the sort of perfect period of his life. So the Garden of Eden is this very strange, complex, deeply flawed, fascinating muddle of a book, um, kind of patched together, chopped up, brought out um, posthumously. Hemingway produced... I've never seen the manuscripts, but apparently there are boxes and boxes of manuscripts that he didn't he didn't finish. You know, he never edited it. He just, it just sprawled and sprawled and sprawled, and he tried to cut it and shape it. the The final version that came out um, that Scribner's published is very short, um, and obviously we don't know how he would have felt about the way it was cut together and that tension. You know, the the, the author's idea of the book and. And the editor's idea of the book and what we come to as readers of the published version is something I really wanted to explore. So, you know, what's in those other pages and what are in what was in Ernest Hemingway's mind that never made it onto a page? You know, what did he really want to write? And if you give agency to the editors after the author's death, what if, you know, some of the characters had some agency too? That's where I was going with Catherine. How much could she decide how the book is shaped during the writing process, but also afterwards. Um, so yes, it's a, it's a short period um, of Ernest Hemingway's life that that the Garden of Eden taps into, but it took him decades of writing to get it down. And obviously, we only have a fraction of what he wrote. Um, so in in my novel Eden, I've I've kind of placed sections of his writing of the novel alongside his his kind of chronological biography at the same time. So the points in his life where he may have written parts of the book and how those moments in his life affected what he was writing and how he was thinking about the past. Um, he certainly, he was writing a lot of it as an older man. He considered himself an old man very early, actually, <laughs> you know, in terms of years. He felt like an old man um, and presented himself as the wise old man. You know. But he... He obviously had an older man's understanding of his youth in certain sections of the writing. And it's like, you know, what would we say to our younger selves if we were starting again? He's saying some of those things to David, I think. So I'm, I'm really interested in the, the biographical strand of the book and the way you present Hemingway, which is not the way readers who perhaps don't know much about Hemingway other than the, the popular legend might expect you know i think a lot of people see him as this hyper masculine aggressive insensitive man in capital letters but that's not the person you write about certainly at one point in fact a character in another strand penelope who we'll we'll get to and talk about some more asked the question what about hemingway the damage the deranged and the despairing so i guess my question is what a, what about him First of all, why do you think so many people have this image of Hemingway the Boer? And then how closely do you feel that tracks to reality and the, the Hemingway you wanted to portray? Well, I was very conscious of the fact that Hemingway presented himself as this hyper-masculine figure, but that he was more complex than that. And certainly his, his writing and uh, some of his uh, personal letters and diaries and so on indicate that he was very interested in sexuality and gender fluidity 
Um, and there was a, there are a lot of intimate details that he and his wives wrote about that suggest that that was the case. Um, I suppose Ernest Hemingway had an idea of himself that he presented, and I feel like it ran away from him, and he couldn't reel it back in. And he wrote versions of himself constantly, as we all do. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter whether we're being consciously autobiographical or not there's always going to be elements of ourselves in our writing we can't remove ourselves completely I was interested in how Hemingway's the the voice that Hemingway uses when he's dealing with a character like Nick Adams for example which is very close to Nick um, that sense of, of the narrator kind of being on Nick's shoulder but not being in the first person we should quickly explain Nick Adams yeah. being there Perhaps the Hemingway stand-in, but a character who occurs again and again in Hemingway's short stories, especially his earlier ones. Yes, and he's the kind of, you know, fishing, outdoorsy, blokey kind of chap that we'd expect him to be. Um, but there's a voice, there's a detached voice that's also very close in in the Nick Adams stories that is probably Hemingway's strongest writing, I would say. It is that classic Hemingway prose that we, you know that we associate with him before it gets kind of baggy and bloated and a bit loose and a bit repetitive later on so I was thinking what what if Hemingway's narrative was kind of told in that way and was as honest as that and was as frank as that about himself that's what I was trying to write in his biographical strand a voice that could be giving Hemingway himself the Nick Adams treatment mm, it was quite a challenge <laughs> Yes, yeah, I had so, to read everything, everything, <laughs> <laughs> the good and the bad and the very ugly sometimes. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it seems clear from the book that you've you've done an, an awful lot of reading about Hemingway. And, you know, so far as I can see, uh, while it's a fictionalised account, you have stuck closely to the, the known facts and, and not really changed that much around. And I wondered how it how it was to to be writing a book with that going on and you know this very not non-fiction but very factual presentation and having that running alongside an entirely fictionalized narrative and how how you switch from one to the other i'm assuming the other one is fictionalized anyway perhaps yes, you can tell a, yes I should, I should say very clearly having talked about autobiography that it is entirely fictionalized yes and and you know catherine within Eden is, uh, you know, there are points of her narrative that I've created that are, that are very explicitly tied to the Garden of Eden moments in the Garden of Eden, and then kind of extrapolated those and expanded on them. Gosh, having the having the three voices running together, I very quickly discovered that I should only write one at a time because they leak into each other, and that's, you know, it's a classic problem of writing multiple narration that certainly that I've experienced, of voices tending to merge if we don't treat them separately. And after a while, it's possible to, to switch from one to the other and, and have a very, like, like, kind of, you know, I'm putting on Penelope's costume today and I can write Penelope because I know who she is and I know where she is and what she sounds like and how she thinks. Um, but it does take time to establish that and those differences. And that's also a, quite a large editing job. Um, and hats off to my editors for telling me to carve away bits of Catherine that had become repetitive, perhaps through writing them um, 
you know, as one long strand and then trying to break them up um, and, and fix, glue the gaps together. <laughs> um, they were very good at spotting the glue and helping me take it out. Sonia, I recall recently watching the Ken Burns documentary about Ernest Hemingway. And one of the things that struck me most was someone that they were interviewing, and I can't unfortunately remember whom, but they described Hemingway as a man who loved falling in love. And certainly, at least the the general sense or the the aura or the, the the myth of Hemingway is of this amazing womanizer, you know, who almost had this like uncontrollable sexual drive and was never content with one woman, but fell in love with a woman, sometimes married them, but then quickly, you know, had straying eyes and would fall in love with another and kept mistresses. And so I was, I was struck by the part of the book when you are um, inside Hemingway's head and he's thinking about writing the garden of Eden and this tale of David and Catherine and another woman. And he's very much decided that this is a marriage that's going to destroy both David and Catherine, but it's not going to be because of the other woman. It's going to be because of David's writing career. And in particular, these clippings, or I guess we would say it today, you know, online reviews or whatever the equivalent would be, but what the critics or the public is thinking about the work that David is publishing. And getting back again to how autobiographical your book is on the Ernest Hemingway parts, I'm wondering, was Hemingway quite so brittle himself in terms of how his work was received and what others thought about his work? He was, I think he was fiercely jealous of other writers. And I think that's, yes, so he was constantly comparing himself to others. Um, and, you know, and getting pissed off when he didn't get the prizes he thought he deserved. <laughs> he had a lot to say about critics. And some of that's in the book, you know, the, the people that he felt had kind of, you know, raised him up just just in order to bring him down again. And you know, sustaining that level of of fame and, and expectation must be exhausting. I mean, you know, it must have been a big deal for him to think, oh, I'm going to put another novel out there and are they going to rip me to shreds or are they going to love it? They should love it because I'm great, but they might just decide to rip it to shreds. I think he was constantly in that frame of mind of trying to prove himself. Um, and certainly he, he seemed to have a quite a serious chip on his shoulder in relationship to F. Scott Fitzgerald, who he met, you know, I've deliberately used that through the book that he was always measuring himself against Scott and, and you know, eventually thinks he's better and that Scott's washed up. Um, and of course, he lasts a lot longer than Scott Fitzgerald uh, as a writer and as a, a person. Uh, but he he was also quite competitive with Martha Gellhorn as another writer. And I, I kind of wanted to bring that in. So the strand of, of Hemingway's story, when he starts The Garden of Eden, he's married to Martha Gellhorn and she's a journalist and she's busy writing and he's in a kind of lull in his career. And I thought, you know, can I ramp up the tension of that a bit and 
was that potentially feeding his thoughts about David and David's relationship to his work and his wife, whether his wife would... Because in the Garden of Eden, his wife is kind of jealous of the attention that his, his work is getting, that David's work is getting. Is that somehow Ernest Hemingway kind of, you know, sort of projecting his own jealousies and fears on someone else? I think, I think that must have been a factor. So talking of Ernest Hemingway being perhaps overbearing, I realise we've got, we've got 20 minutes in and we've, we've just been speaking about <laughs> which is always going to be the temptation. I could happily talk about it much longer. In fact, I do have other things I want to ask you later on, but I'm very conscious that there's another strand in the book that we should talk about, this delicate, difficult love story between Penelope and Max. So perhaps you could tell us a, a little bit about them. Yeah, so I wanted to have a contemporary strand where somebody is reading is reading The Garden of Eden now. And my first thought was that there could be, you know, that, that maybe there could be two readers in a reading group discussing. And I thought, oh my God, that's so middle class. Nobody's going to be even remotely interested in that. But I am, I am a tutor at a university. I'm a creative writing tutor. I'm not a modernist scholar. I just like to get that out there. And I have a lot of conversations with students about literature, obviously, and also about their lives. And I had a conversation with a student many years ago, standing in the rain, and the student was talking about how they were going to give up university and everything was going wrong. And I had one of those moments of, you know, sort of being very aware of being in a strong pastoral position talking to this person and that I was like, I was in loco parentis, you know, I was there to to try and just calm the student down and and give them a sense of perspective. And that was a kind of clicking moment for me when I was thinking about the book that actually Penelope could be somebody who has a moment like that with a student but it turns and she becomes obsessed with them and that's what happens so she she meets she has taught Max before Max is her, her an undergraduate student he's in his final year at university and he keeps kind of cropping up in front of her and she begins to um, tutor his final project uh, and he chooses to write it about the Garden of Eden and this is why Penelope's revisiting the book and then she starts to kind of live vicariously through this book and it shapes her relationship with Max and it shapes the way that they communicate. I wanted something also you know sort of thinking about how to write about the things that interested Hemingway. Obviously, falling in love and transgression were huge subjects for him, and The Garden of Eden is all about transgression. So I wanted these characters' relationship to be transgressive, and knowing, as I do, you know, this, the powerful situation that, that tutors can be in, that's a terrible transgression, you know, to... to have an affair with a student it's something that we sort of see treated in literature so much with the older male academic and the young impressionable female and I thought let's turn that around and see what it's like the other way around but the writing the writing plays a, a different role does it not with Penelope and Max Penelope is finishing her own book on appropriately Gertrude Stein who of course played a big role in Hemingway's life um but I don't see the parallel there, and maybe intentionally you didn't want to have the parallel insofar as the writing that Penelope's doing coming between 
her affair with Max or her marriage uh, with her husband, Nate. Yeah. So in fact, it's, it kind of realigns her in a way and, and, and focuses her attention. And, you know, she's, she's very disenchanted. She's in an unhappy marriage. You know, she's feeling a bit downtrodden at work and the affair kind of reignites her sense of self in a way. And that, that helps her to write the book. So yes, it's a very different function of the writing. Um, and it certainly has a different relationship to, to her, her reading Hemingway. I'm wondering if, if I'm right in seeing a parallel between the, the Max and Penelope narrative strand and uh, the Hemingway biography in that um, Hemingway in particular in, in the strand you present is, he finds it really hard to come to terms with the aging process, you know, as you might expect from a handsome, you know, active man who then has all kinds of catastrophic in injuries and drinks himself out of health as well and is as you said early on he feels old early but is is not happy about it and um and there's a a very telling moment in the book when uh, a young woman who he essentially has his eye on is repulsed by him when he's about to to move in to kiss her and he has this horrible kind of I suppose you could almost call it a joy scene epiphany where he he realizes he's no longer in the game as it were and um I'm I'm wondering if I'm right to see parallels between that and Penelope is is what she's doing is that a reaction to to her aging as well yes so I was very conscious of of the the story of Hemingway and the Venetian girl as she's she's referred to in the novel who's much younger and how inappropriate that is and that yes there is there is a parallel for Penelope this kind of you know seeking of youth I suppose in middle age and, and later middle age as Hemingway does and that's also what I think the whole of the Garden of Eden is about is Hemingway trying to go back you know trying to go back to this non-existent halcyon period and trying to write it into being and and that's kind of that infects Penelope in a way that she wants to be in that world and she does say she wants to be those characters she wants to be David Bourne you know sitting down to write she wants to be Catherine Bourne walking on the sands you know young and scandalous and beautiful she wants those things and she's not going to get them because that's not where she is or who she is but Max gives her a, a little flavor of what that might be like but of course it can't be it's just impossible I feel like I keep coming back to a similar theme, but getting at it from a different angle. So apologies in advance, but um, there's a really striking scene in the book when Catherine intentionally burns David's notebooks. And again, it's this issue of their, their destructive love and passion not being destroyed by by an affair or another lover, but really being destroyed by this jealousy of, of David's writing. And Hemingway had a similar kind of thing happen to him in real life, correct? When his wife lost, I guess, a suitcase that was full of his notebooks. And I wondered if in your kind of research on Hemingway, whether you got any feeling that Hemingway maybe thought that that was intentional on the part of his wife, that she had maybe consciously or subconsciously wanted to have his 
notebooks destroyed and his writing career frustrated. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, perhaps as a kind of deeply suppressed Freudian moment, there are great retellings of this moment when Hadley's first wife is going to meet Hemingway and, and she t- she thinks I'll be really useful and I'll take everything because he might want to work on something, you know, so I'm going to take the lot. And she fills the suitcase with all of his notebooks, everything, everything is in it. And she takes it on the train to meet him and she puts the luggage down on the station platform and, and goes to tend something else. And when she comes back, the suitcase is gone. And in his uh, memoir, Movable Feast, Hemingway writes about this moment and how crushing it is, but how he, he comforts her. But there are lots of versions of this and that he doesn't comfort her and that he is furious with her. And she turns up and she, she's so afraid of him that she can barely speak. She can't tell him what she's done. He accuses her of all kinds of things. And then finally she tells him and that's like even worse than anything else that he can think of. And I was I was really struck because I knew about this story, having read A Movable Feast before I read The Garden of Eden, when I came across the burning. And I thought that's the moment that Hadley loses the suitcase. That's got to be how he's he's kind of exercised this feeling and he's blaming her for destroying everything. Um, but of course, for David in The Garden of Eden, it's a kind of an opportunity to rewrite and, and kind of reconstruct himself. And similarly for Hemingway, he he did he did manage to sort of recreate some of the stories that he'd been working on. But perhaps it doesn't matter that those things were lost because, you know, he had to start again and he built his writing from from that point upwards. So, is it a kind of phoenix moment perhaps for both of them? I think maybe it is. And I really, I have to say, I really enjoyed writing that scene from Catherine's perspective because she's suddenly kind of she's sort of almost stuck in aspect because Hemingway is enjoying writing it so much and I was enjoying writing it so much um, I felt like I was connecting with him strangely through that that experience and thinking about my god how awful would it be you know that moment when you fear that you've just wiped the only copy of a novel in progress that you've got on your laptop <laughs> everyone's had one of those moments that, oh no it's gone it's gone um, if somebody else had done that to you how would you feel I mean they must, they must be part of you that would think they did it on purpose. I want to ask about the, the non-Phoenix moment in the book, if I can put it that way. And I, I apologise to any listeners who, who don't know this, if it's a terrible spoiler, but there is only one way the Ernest Hemingway story was going to end. And how did it feel as a writer, knowing that that was the ending that was imposed on you? And not only that, but that it was this terrible tragedy that you had to build up to yeah I'm sorry sir I really loved writing that scene as well (laughs) how fun is it to kill people in fiction um it's I mean it's terrible isn't it it's it's awful Ernest is losing his mind he's he's got so little grasp of reality and it is heartbreaking actually seeing uh, you were saying about watching the documentary seeing some of the last footage of him where he's totally out of it you know he's it's just awful and I wanted to kind of remind people about the state that he was in at the end of his life and that he wasn't, you know, there was an element of him that was constantly toughing it out, but just how damaged and vulnerable he was. And it is it is terrible. But I also wanted to sort of present it in a way that showed him still in control. I mean, he chooses to take his own life. And it's it's as if he's always known that. That he was going to do that. And there are stories, you know, from friends saying that he would 
when he was in his cups, he, he would get the shotgun out and show them how he was going to, you know, how to do it, how to shoot off. Um, and of course, he does it. So it's it's like he's always known that that's the way that he can finish his own story. He gets control of the ending, and that's quite powerful, really, isn't it? So, as a writer, Sonia, in your in your book, Hemingway very much keeps hidden the fact that he's writing the Garden of Eden. He's also been working on a memoir, and I guess both projects kind of took years. He was working on them, sometimes simultaneously, sometimes one, sometimes the other, but he seems to, you know, lock up the manuscript of the Garden of Eden every day when he's finished writing. His wife's typing out his handwritten notes for his memoir, but he doesn't allow her to do that with the Garden of Eden. Do you want to talk a little bit about why that's the the case? I think it it was probably such raw material for him that he wasn't ready for other people to see it. Um, And maybe that's partly because he wasn't in control. He didn't feel in control of it. He didn't want anyone else to see the scrawling mess that it was. But there's also a moment in the book where I, I kind of imagine him thinking, this is too true. It's too true to print. The memoir, he knows, is a version of the truth. It's palatable. It's kind of not even sanitised because at times he's, he, he does sanitise, but at other times he's really nasty about people that are no longer around to defend themselves. He can get away with that. But the rawness of how he feels in, is in the Garden of Eden, and maybe nobody's ready for that yet. I mean, he does think about how in, in Eden, in my version of him, he thinks about how some books are just not meant to be read you know some books are just just need to be written but people aren't ready to read them yet and that can kind of carries over that he doesn't want even his wife to see it yet so he hadn't released any of the book for publication it it was it was scriveners that came in and and tidied it up so did he want it to be published? We just, we don't know. He was working on it, he was wrestling with it, but he wasn't ready to share it. Another another interesting aspect of this is the, the Hemingway you present, it's almost as if he feels he's wasting, wasted his talent, which is an interesting thing to to think about Ernest Hemingway, who, who published so many world-changing books. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that and why why he might think in that way i think that's just the that's how creative people feel isn't it constantly like we're never doing enough we never we've never challenged ourselves enough we haven't done enough he was you know this thing about always measuring himself up against other people he knew he hadn't wasted his talents unlike some of his friends um who sort of squandered their lives early but did he feel like he'd ever done his best work I don't know. Do we ever feel like we've ever done our best work? Surely we would just write one novel and stop if we felt like that. <laughs> you kind of got to feel like, oh, I'm not doing enough. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. And I'm I'm also keen on the idea of this, you know, the root of, of Eden, of the Garden of Eden and of Eden is this hunger, this this sort of driving desire that can't be satisfied, that is the creative itch that, you know, we can't ever successfully scratch I think because if we did we'd stop um there's always the next thing and the next and how can we ever be blissful if 
we're tormented by the desire to create. That sounds terribly profound, but you know what I mean. It's <laughs> it it it's just there, isn't it? Gnawing all the time. Mm. Well, speaking of ambition, I want to talk about your own because to me it seems brave and somewhat what makes your book extraordinary in that you have a narrative here one strand of the three is told through the the voice and the perspective of a fictional character in the book about which you're writing about the author and also the reader of the book and I don't think that I know of many books that do that, that kind of get inside the head of a fictional character. And maybe more more rare is this kind of, she knows that she's a fictional character as she's thinking about what she's going to do and what Ernest and David are making her do. And I, I wondered whether that was always your intent to have Catherine's point of view be part of this story or did it come later in your thinking about the novel and what you wanted to do with it? It was the third voice that I tackled. Um, so I knew I wanted to write Hemingway. I knew I wanted a reader. But the thing that attracted me to the Garden of Eden and that stayed with me was Catherine. And she was she was the agent of chaos I needed, basically, to sort of turn the whole book inside out. Um, and I, I do think she's a powerful creation. What she's like um, in the manuscript versions I, I i don't know but in the published version she is she is a force to be reckoned with um and i wanted to let her loose and i wanted to see what she would do if she knew she had agency and a lot of that idea about you know am i real am i not real has come from that sense that i have as a writer of you know if i'm in the thick of something and i walk away what are those characters up to when I'm not looking? You know, what are they going to do? Where are they going to be when I sit down next and try and control them? Because they do, you know, like a neglected cat, they do bother me if I'm not paying them enough attention. <laughs> and, yes. and that's the, it, it is that sort of summoning of something, isn't it, that we do when we create. Um, what? Yeah, if, if we don't water that plant, what's going to happen to it? And is it going to take over the bed next to it? And there's one next to that. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a dangerous business making stuff up and walking away. Th those manuscripts that we've been talking about, the Garden of Eden, the the eight hundred odd pages that this, as you say, short book was published from in the mid nineteen eighties. Where are they? And what's happening with them? And is there any chance we're ever going to get to see them? I don't know if anything's going to happen with them. So when I originally looked into it. They were um, they were in a university archive in the states. I think they're in the Kennedy Center, but I'm I'm not sure where they are now. Will they ever be published? I don't know. Can anyone be bothered with the sort of you know constant back and forth? I think he made a lot of decisions that he then undid again um, in the writing, and it became very muddled. So how it, how it would read if it would even be a consistent manuscript or there was even a finished manuscript I think it's a lot of bits and pieces um, it would be interesting to know if anyone decides to go you know go back into it and make comparisons Scrivener's must have had some form of manuscript that they worked with they must have put everything together before they started hacking at it but I don't know what happened to that 
Mm. There's something so so tantalising about it. You know, mm. Hemingway, who we so often think of as the, the master of concision and someone so in control of what he says and how he says it, to see him lose his way like that, it must be fascinating to read through that. Well, <laughs> fascinating and perhaps also tedious, which is why he never finished it or published it. But there is something something about that that's really intriguing. Yeah, yeah, and that kind of bagginess that he would have hated people to see. I mean, maybe it's best we never know. <laughs> Anya, I want to really congratulate you on this book. It was released in the UK in July, is that correct? That's right, yeah. Yeah, it's um, published in the UK by a relatively new small press, Weatherglass Books. And I wondered if you knew whether it might be picked up by a publisher in the United States. That would be marvellous. I'm sure they're open to offers. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll leave it at that. Sonia, overall, thank you for being on today and talking to us about your wonderful new novel, Eden. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.